Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. You may have heard of this case, read about it. Uh, it came out in Science Magazine. Uh, Eric Sordo, a 34-year-old man, he's been paralyzed from the neck down for the past 13 years. However, thanks to a groundbreaking clinical trial conducted by scientists at Caltech and USC, he's been able to smoothly drink a bottle of beer using a robotic arm controlled with his mind. He's the first patient to have had a neural prosthetic device implanted in a region of the brain thought to control intentions. I read about this in theconversation.com. The author was Ken Valier, uh, who is a lecturer in cognitive neuroscience at Bangor University in Wales. And we bring him on for the first part of the program today to uh, talk about advances in robotics, in neuroscience. And we've reached Ken Valier uh, in Wales. Uh, welcome to the program. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Later in the program, we're going to talk with Sachit, uh, Sachin Pavathran, Program Director for the Utah Assistive Technology Program. And uh, we'll end the program talking with Jay uh, Jaya Seeland, founder and CEO of Learning Through Robotics, a Utah company which helps kids learn STEM uh, concepts through robotics. Uh, we'll start with uh, Ken, Ken Valuher. So this, this is, I guess, t- t- the word I was searching for is cool. But to Mr. Sorto, this is beyond cool. This is this, is, and and people like him are paralyzed. This is quite the advance. What has been the case before? Have have people been able to move, um, you know, robotic arms and such with their minds before this? Uh, right. Yes. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that was special about this um, paper that came out, as you say, in Science. And what they've done uh, is that they've recorded for the first time from a particular uh, set of brain areas uh, in the posterior parietal cortex. So prior to this um, project, um, there have been some successful uh, work where they've done some implants um, over a different brain area uh, known as the primary motor cortex. So there has been successes uh, since this point and since this uh, publication uh, where they've been able to provide um, movement capabilities to individuals um, that have lost those abilities uh, by recording from uh, an implanted device uh, in the brain and uh, things like a robotic arm have been controlled before. Uh, so I'm looking at this picture, Mr. Sorto. Um, he's sitting in his wheelchair. He's, uh, I think it's a gunshot wound, and he, so he's paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, he's got things coming out of his head. I guess it, it looks like, you know, the what you'd plug into your computer. Is that so? T- tell me about that. How do they? How do you get the signals out of his brain? Right. So what you're seeing there is a, re- uh, the recording chambers. Um, and what they've done is they've been an implanted an electrode array. So these are instruments that are able to um, record changes in the electrical activity of, sing- of neurons uh, or brain cells. Um, so this uh, information is then read out to um, computers and try- decoded, if you will. Um, and uh, you know, through a process of training, uh, they uh, translate that information uh, into control parameters for something like 
the robotic arm, which you've seen in some of the videos there, uh, but also they can do you know cursor movements and on, on a computer and so on. So, so, so they're actually recording um, um, you know uh, electrical activity from the brain cells of um, of the patient. Hmm. Yeah, just fascinating. Um, so before, as I understand it, reading your your analysis of this, uh, what scientists were doing was recording uh, brain activity in the, the part of the brain that controls direct activity, so motor motor control, and that, that's what produced. It did produce some results, but it's kind of, as you said, shaky and, and jerky. Yeah, well, uh, that's right. That's right. And, and it was a, surely a sensible place to start. That 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 part of the brain uh, is has direct connections to the spinal cord and the muscle machinery of, of the periphery um, of the limbs and so on. And uh, we know that if you have damage to that area of the brain, uh, you have uh, problems moving the parts of the body that are opposite. So there's an organization, a very basic level of organization that the brain and spinal cord, uh, known as a contralateral organization, so that um, the left side of the brain has a privileged role in the control and sensing the right side of the body. And uh, so that, that's a very uh, basic organizational principle. That's not to say that both sides aren't important. It's just that there's this um, predominant role of the uh, alternate side. Um, what I find really, um, what I found very encouraging about the new results was that really this ties together uh, a range of findings from uh, from prior disciplines. So for a long time, they had been recording in in monkeys and uh, animals uh, from the posterior parietal cortex, and they've been describing the the properties of these cells, and uh, it's been long, you know, since. Well, I would point out. This um, researcher named Vernon Mountcastle in the 70s, who really pioneered this work, and since then there's been great advances and, uh, and just a, a, a wealth of information collected uh, using these similar recording methods, right, where you're actually recording the neurons uh, while the monkey interacts with objects and so on, and, and it's understood from this work that these areas in posterior parietal cortex are critical for the guidance and control of the hand, for shaping the hand in accordance with target objects, their orientation, their shape, and so on. Um, and more recently, there has been uh, convergence in, this, in these ideas uh, through human literature, uh, so using non-invasive methods like functional MRI. Uh, the findings, it's really been quite a success story, I would say, in cognitive neuroscience that there is convergent evidence now that, that there are these, uh, these areas in posterior parietal cortex that are important for the guidance and control planning uh, of uh, actions, actions of the arm and hand uh, for grasping and so on. And uh, so this is the, the big advance, isn't it, that, that uh, part of the brain there, they recorded in the case of Mr. Sordo, uh, and that the result in the smooth movements here is is this uh, this PPC this uh, parietal cortex, uh, which uh, has to do with intent, right? Thought and intent. 
Yeah, well, that's one of the ideas, certainly. And they did describe a couple of different types of signals that they were able to disentangle from these recordings. And I should say that they actually have two different recording sites. They didn't talk about it very much in the paper, but um, they're named after these, uh, these areas in the monkey that have been studied so extensively. One of them is called... AIP, or anterior interparietal cortex, and as the name suggests, it's actually within the inter- interparietal sulcus. Um, um, so they say it's putative human AIP, and so the literature in humans uh, has provided some support at this area uh, of the brain seems to be important for grasping. And then the other area is more medial to that, Uh, Area 5D, again, that's a monkey area that's functionally defined in the monkey. Um, But in the humans, again, there's been some supporting evidence from other methods, some non-invasive methods, and also from um, neuropsychological methods, so methods where we study the patterns of um, deficits and preserved abilities in patients. So there have been some cases where there's focal damage to one of these areas, and this often results in problems um, controlling the hand and arm to reach targets, uh, grasping a condition known as optic ataxia, which really is characterized by misreaching in the periphery. But when you study, when studied carefully, uh, this also in, uh, can involve problems in shaping the hand in accordance with the shape and orientation of target objects. So again, there's been this convergence, but until now, you know, there hasn't been any of this work involving uh, the control of an of a external device uh, using signals from these brain areas. So that's indeed a really, I think, a step forward and, and uh, I think provides concrete support for these prior models that have been around for uh, the last few decades and continue to gain steam. Um, but you mentioned that intention, this idea of intention, and... Um, Yes, so so sometimes these areas are thought of as higher-level action planning areas. They coordinate with motor cortex, uh, but they're thought to represent um, the planning and intention of actions alongside of some details about the specifics. Um, So in order to reach out and grasp your um, coffee mug, you know, you need to know its location with respect to your body. Uh, you need to shape your hand accordingly with respect to the, the absolute metrics of the handle and so on. So you need to know, the, your brain needs to know all of these details about how to guide and control your, your arm and hand to get that done, although we don't really think too much about it. It happens so easily. Now, uh, I'm tempted, and I'll yield to that temptation, uh, to go to, to uh, science fiction uh, and aided in that because you went there in your paper, uh, your your article for theconversation.com. Um, you talk about Star Wars and the scene in Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker, his, his hand's been cut off and he's been fitted with a new cybernetic hand for the first time. And you, you point out we're still a long way away from this. But for those patients like Mr. Sordo, this is a tremendous step forward. And it kind of, kind of, yeah. yield, kind of, kind of put your mind towards science fiction. 
Yeah, it certainly does. And, and you know, I, that was in part encouraged by the editors, you know, of the conversation and the nature of those articles, really. I see. Just, they, they wanted to goose um, the article up. I okay, gotcha. Well, it's kind of fun and yeah. you know, make mm-hmm. it more uh, engaging and so on. And, and I should say, just as a point of clarification, that the part about the shaky movements and so on, I think this is yet to be really um, concretely established with scientific evidence. So the, the authors themselves, if you read the paper, say that it's difficult to, to draw direct comparisons with their work from the prior work. And I agree, and I think that uh, that, that comment was really quite anecdotal. It, 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 so in some of the prior work, it is definitely acknowledged that the, the movements that were... Um, that were achieved were sort of, um, you know, in problems with the trajectory. They were a bit shaky. They, 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 the success rate was not always so great. And so there were real limitations, right? Uh, wobbly and direct tra- uh, trajectories and so on. Um, but I would urge caution about taking that too far. Uh, I think that, uh, that um, some of the the science still needs to go, uh, we still need to progress uh, in order to really compare. And, and one of the, the other things that they found that was so, that I think what's interesting about what uh, Richard Anderson's group and this new study um, discovered was so far uh, the prior work really uh, identified signals that could be used to, that ha- seem to have a relationship with the velocity and control parameters of the of the robotic arm, so the trajectory of, of where it moves in space and and the velocity of those movements and so on. Well, recording from posterior parietal cortex, uh, these guys in this new study found signals that were capable of um, uh, that seemed to contain information about those specifics, but they also found evidence that there was uh, they were these signals they were uh, classifying as intent or goal-related that were specified over a delay period where the robotic arm wasn't actually being moved, uh, that were available within, uh, I think it was 150 milliseconds, so very quickly you could read out uh, meaningful information. So it's a bit of a suggestion, right? It's a hypothesis that this is related to the intent to move. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. Yeah. But it 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 is uh, you know it is very hopeful. I wonder you uh, in 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 your article you uh, talk about uh, you use the word uh, this has potential to revolutionize this this field. What uh, what, what where are you hoping this goes? Well, you know, one of the things I found really intriguing about their set of findings was. Um, they described some of these signals that were related to um, either imagined movements of the left hand or the right hand, or uh, that were seemed to be um, involved in either hand. And they did the work to distinguish this from imagined uh, or delayed eye movements in the patient. So the reason why this is important, this is sort of a subtopic in the field known as effector specificity. That is, you know, how specific are the plans to control actions? Are they specific to a particular body part, right? And the fact that some of these signals 
uh, were tied to our movements or imagined our movements, but did not um, seem to be specific to either the left or right hand, suggests that there's a bit of an independence, that is, that they're important for the control of actions, but they're not necessarily tied to the mechanical specifics of the arm, right, the, the characteristics of the actual arm. And this is all very early days to, to make this kind of um, suggestion, but it at least leads to a hypothesis. So the authors uh, emphasize that these signals the ones that seem to be important for either hand could be very useful for the control by manual action. So often in everyday life, we use the, our, both of our hands in concert. We, we, we do make unilateral, that is, one-handed uh, uh, movements, one-handed actions. But I think the predominant um, kinds of movements we make, the hands are working together. They're, they're always involved. So I agree that, that this, was a, this was an interesting idea and certainly worth pursuing so they could do, start to do experiments about imagined by manual movements. Uh, and, you know, when you, when you really look closely at the roles of the different hands in actions, it's uh, very interesting. It, it becomes very clear that each hand has a particular role. So, so for example, you know, in a right-handed individual, it's true that we prefer our, to use our right hands for some tasks, uh, writing being a classic one, but even in that very classically thought of as unimanual task, uh, the left hand plays a role in stabilizing the material that you're writing on, for example. So there's always this other role of the left hand. So I think one step further is uh, to really try and disentangle this idea of specificity, right? Uh, that they're, they're tied to a particular body part or not? Are they independent of the body part? And if they're independent of the effectors that actually accomplish the movement, this could allow a kind of flexibility, uh, a kind of one step back from specifying the, the fine-grained details of motor control. And you can imagine how this could be very important. Perhaps these kinds of signals would allow for the control of, of multiple different types of devices, devices that have different physical and dynamical properties, uh, all from the same brain area. You know, uh, that's the sort of a very hopeful, very optimistic um, uh, line of thinking about this. Um, an entire. I could say a little bit more. Yeah. yeah. I was just wondering. So you take that a step further, and I don't know. You know, if we ever get there, but it this this seems to provide some hope. Uh, say an entire robotic body. You know, Mr. Sorto could uh, could um, you know control with his with his mind. Uh, you know, many different devices representing many different parts of his body. Yeah, well, that, that's sort of the. Uh, I think that's the suggestion, uh, and I will say that, of course, the, the, you know, we're a long way from that still. That there needs to be the careful work uh, to progress forward, but it is interesting to think about it. And um, so we've known for a, for a long time that there is a kind of hierarchy to the control of actions. That there, at, sure, at the for example, at the really fine-grained level, you do need to instruct the musculature the jo and, and provide information about the particular joint angles and all, the, all that kind of nitty-gritty detail, right? But at the same time, um, 
there's evidence that there's a kind of higher level organization involved as well. So a nice example by um, uh, researcher Alan Wing, who looked at writing styles. So if you if you do look at uh, at the way you write with different instruments, you know you have to control a pen very differently than a a very large stick that you're writing your name in the sand and so on. Right, the, the, the mechanics and the control of your muscles are all different, but yet there is a kind of signature, there's a kind of characteristic writing style uh, evident if you ask people to do this, So, uh, which really s- suggests that there's this kind of overarching motor plan, right? There's an action plan at a very high level. So it's fascinating to think, and I think that this relates to tool use more generally, right? The, the, our ability to use uh, objects in different ways even ones that we haven't really experienced the dynamics of yet, we can control them uh, and uh, we can get uh, accomplish our goals with them. And, and it's that level that I think may uh, provide a really uh, flexible and um, versatile um, signal, set of signals. Uh, again, this is just a, a hypothesis, of course, but um, it is exciting to imagine that the work could end up going in that direction to provide support for that kind of idea. If you just joined us, we're talking with Ken Valier. He is lecturer in cognitive neuroscience at Bangor University in Wales. That's where we have reached him. Another five minutes or so with him, and uh, then we'll be talking with Sachin Pavitran, who's with the Center for Persons with Disabilities at USU, talking about uh, current assistive technology. We'll end the program later on uh, talking with a gentleman from a Utah company, which uh, uses robots to uh, encourage children to learn STEM concepts, science, technology, engineering, and math. You're welcome to join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495, or upraxis at gmail.com is the email, upraxis at gmail.com. Ken Valier, I wonder if you'd uh, talk a little bit about your research. You, you concentrate on the hand, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, the purpose of my research is to, you know, better understand the brain behavioral relationships that underlie the control of the hand, primarily the hand and arm. Uh, I focus on uh, uh, behaviors such as grasping and tool use, and we make use of uh, primarily functional MRI, although we also couple that with uh, behavioral work where we're looking at motion capture methods. So. So it's not unlike um, the kinds of technology that provides you, um, that they use for the CGI, like uh, Lord of the Rings, the Gollum type stuff, where you um, you can capture movements of, of, uh, of an individual. So in, in, the sci- in science, what we can do is, is capture the fine-grained movement characteristics of the hand and arm and really any part of the body that we uh, choose to look at. Um, uh, so, yes, I, I use a com- combination of these methods to try and better understand uh, how the brain controls the hand for, for actions. Uh, I believe this team at Caltech also used functional MRI. What, uh, uh, could you explain that a little more to me, using functional MRI to, to, I guess, to capture these signals from the brain? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and you know, that, that's where it really concretely bridges the, the two disciplines. Because what they did with Eric was they asked him, they put him in the MRI scanner, um, 
should I say a little bit about what the functional MRI yeah, reflects? Yeah, with that, yeah. Mm-hmm. That does, okay. Yeah, so, um, it, so functional MRI is a way that we can measure correlates of brain activation. And, and what we're actually measuring is changes in the oxygen content of blood at a very fairly fine scale. So it turns out that uh, hemoglobin, when it's fully loaded with oxygen molecules, have different, has different magnetic properties than when it's unloaded. And these changes uh, can be detected by the machine. The machine creates a very strong magnetic field. You put someone in there, ask them to do tasks. Uh, and we can see changes basically in the oxygen delivery to different brain areas associated with different whatever tasks we're asking them to do, whatever stimuli we've uh, we've been showing them. And so the changes in the blood oxygen delivery uh, is a measure of changes in neural activation, uh, an indirect measure. So what they asked Eric to do was to imagine uh, grasping uh, an object, which was presented as a virtual object, a stimuli on a project, projected on a screen for him to view. And he was to imagine grasping that object, and the object was presented in different orientations, and he, it either required a very precision grasp, which involved would have involved his thumb and, and index finger, or what's called a power grasp or a whole hand grasp, which involves all the digits. And an, another condition they asked him to simply uh, imagine reaching out and touching the object instead. And what they did was they, what's called a no, a go no go task. So uh, at some point you, he gets a signal uh, whether or not to proceed with the imagined movement or not. And this is an interesting, uh, useful condition to include as a control because what they end up doing is comparing brain activation during the actual imagining of grasping versus when uh, you canceled that task, so the no-go version of that. And they actually did uh, also above and beyond the activation that's associated with reaching to define this area that we think is very important for grasping. So functional MRI always involves a comparison between conditions, and what you're looking at is, is greater activation for one condition over the other. And in this way, they were able to localize the brain areas thought to be involved in grasping, and that's where they, they uh, put their electrodes. Hmm. So it really was a proof of principle that the kinds of brain areas were able to identify with functional MRI using a task where they imagined grasping movements uh, does lead, can be tapped into to provide signals for the control of devices. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing, this, the steady advances here. One, uh, a couple of last questions uh, for you, Ken Valier. Uh, you've written that you, uh, in your studies, uh, that if we can have a better understanding of how the brain controls the hand, that'll promote new and improved evidence-based rehabilitation strategies. So I guess, it, you know, verging towards science fiction are our hopes for the future. That's one thing. But also, you know, here and now in rehabilitation, uh, this can be aided by this science as well. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I'm very hopeful about that. Uh, so, for example, stroke um, that often leads to an impairment, uh, a motor impairment. So consequences, uh, disturbance in the control of the hand uh, and you know, um, 
we can think about how to best reha uh, rehabilitate that hand function. Uh, the field's moving forward in terms of knowing something about the brain areas that are important for the control of the hand. Uh, and, and this extends to other kinds of patient populations, uh, such as those that have suffered damage to the limb, uh, maybe uh, uh, injury to one of the peripheral nerves that service the hand, and repair where there's, there's a recovery period, even sports trauma, injury, and so on and so forth. The field's actually uh, advancing where we can, uh, if we have uh, strong uh, hypotheses about this organization, it's not uh, without the realm of reality that we might actually do something about, about this organization uh, to help and promote the rehabilitation of function. So, yes, it's a, it's a new field, this idea that we can use neuroscience and the knowledge of brain organization, functional organization, to help aid uh, rehabilitation. Um, but I think that there's a real uh, need for it in the rehabilitation world. There's a need for evidence-based guidance. Hmm. And then I want to, at the end here, I want to, you know, veer back to the science fiction aspect. I think this really captures yeah. the imagination of people at least, you know, the popular public. Um, I, I'm thinking of, uh, I think it was an Academy Award ceremony. This was sometime after Christopher Reeve had had his accident and uh, was paralyzed. And they, did, they used CGI to, 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 you know, to show him walking again. Um, I don't know. Is, do you think in, in our lifetime, either through robotics or other means, uh, Mr. Sorto could functionally, you know, walk again and, and perform all the things that he would like to do again. Would, you know, would, could this happen that fast within our lifetime? Uh, well, it's unclear whether or not, you know, they can regenerate and, uh, the cells in, in order to have him use his own body, and that would be a whole other uh, set of challenges that I'm not all that familiar right. with. That'd be a separate uh, stream. I can say yeah. that... Yeah, I mean, even for someone that's lost a limb, for example, they are trying to develop a prosthesis uh, that is controlled by the brain, a neural-controlled prosthetic. And I can say that, so one of the things that really struck me uh, from the scene in Star Wars, right, it's kind of a subtle detail, but, um, you know, Luke Skywalker is getting pricked by the... Uh, by the medical robot, and he has a reaction, so he feels from the cybernetic hand. And this actually highlights one of the greatest hurdles in this field, I believe, is that uh, in order for the control, the adaptive control of devices, we need to solve the problem of providing sensory feedback. So we take it for granted, but this is actually a critical element in the, co in the coordination of movement. So before you could actually get there in terms of controlling uh, a robotic device in a very adaptive and flexible way. I believe that we need to uh, find a solution uh, in terms of providing sensory feedback. That is, when we move our hand and so on, we get information about um, how it feels, and that information is critical. And that's something that, that, uh, that's been a, a real hurdle, a, a real roadblock in terms of even, even mechanical prosthetic use. The challenge is that they don't have feeling, right? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, we'll leave it there. We're out of time for this segment, but uh, it's, it's fascinating and uh, very helpful. 
Uh, we've been talking with Ken Valier, lecturer in cognitive neuroscience at Bangor University. He wrote recently on uh, advances in robotics and uh, neuroscience in theconversation.com. Ken Valier, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Sure. Been a pleasure. Following a break, we'll uh, be talking with Sachin Pavathran. He's program director for the Utah Assistive Technology Program. And later in the program, uh, our guest will be uh, Jay uh, Jayaseeland, founder and CEO of Learning Through Robotics, a Utah company that helps kids learn STEM through robotics. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater. A window washer with ambition who rides to the top in a classic Broadway musical romp. How to succeed in business without really trying. July 8th through August 8th in Logan. Details at utahfestival.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We bring in now Sachin Pavathran. He is uh, Program Director for Utah Assistive Technology Program, also Disability Policy Analyst for the Center for Persons with Disabilities. He was appointed by President Obama to the U.S. Access Board, and he currently serves as uh, Chairman of the agency. Uh, Sachin Pavathran, welcome uh, back to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We appreciate you being on. Uh, so tell me what uh, Utah Assistive Technology Program does. Uh, the the UATP, the Utah Assistive Technology Program, is a federal uh, is a federal program. We have a federal grant to ensure people within Utah have access to assistive technology or information on how to get assistive technology. So we provide services so that families and individuals with disabilities have enough information to make a decision to purchase assistive technology to make life. Uh, easier or make to be more independent. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think you uh, were able to hear, hopefully, the the tail end of my conversation with Mr. Valier. Um, I did. And I wonder, do you think this is helpful or or not? To the 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 fact that science fiction captures the imagination—that's frankly, you know, why we're talking about it today. This this, this breakthrough with uh, Mr. Sorto, who can now, with his thoughts, you know, drink a, a glass of beer. Um, smoothly, um, you know, and we we envision these things like the CGI Christopher Reeve and the you know the Star Wars and, and those types of things, fueling the imagination. I guess in one way that that would help uh, fuel the technology. But is, does that help or hinder your work? Do you think? No, I think it promotes what we're doing. Anything that can advance, um, you know, the capability of people being more independent is more than welcome. Um, you know, technology is evolving over time, and assistive technology has changed in the last several years. How it's you know how people are considering what assistive technology is, and how we need to pay attention to how technology is being manufactured and designed. In the past, it used to be all very customized technology for the individual. These days, more and more big companies are trying to mainstream technology so that, you know, it's all inclusive of everyone in spite of, you know, whether you have a disability or not. So, you know, the research that you guys were talking about and uh, having such advances in technology is always going to be a bonus, you know, for, you know, for these individuals. So your one of your jobs, I assume, is to keep an eye on the technology and then to to make sure that as soon as that's available, get it out to the people you serve. 
Yeah, we try to stay on top of what technology is coming out in the in the very spectrum of you know the disability field. Obviously, we can't be an expert or know everything that's out there because technology is evolving and coming out in a pretty fast pace. But yes, we do try to stay on top of it, uh, you know, between all our staff. And we belong to a network of assistive technology specialists that try to stay informed so that they share ideas and information to everyone on the network. Hmm. How has this changed? Or I imagine it's changed quite rapidly. Uh, what what, uh, what new technologies have got you excited? Um, you know, I do have to say this. You know, when we when we talk about assistive technology, it's not always very high tech, very complicated uh, equipment. Mm-hmm. It could be as simple as a very, you know, something very simple as a stick someone uses that's modified to, you know, meet the needs to very, you know, high tech as what, uh, you know, what you guys were talking about. Uh, you know, I'm blind and I use this technology a lot and I've been using very customized technology for the last 20 years, you know, having braille display, refreshable braille display, which, you know, instead of having braille books, which takes a lot of space, having it all available in electronic format in a small portable unit to now using all the mainstream technology like iPads and iPhones, which kind of helps me just walk in the store and use technology, but having specialized software that's installed on there that helps me use those kind of equipment. So it has transitioned over time where a lot of those technologies are not being designed specific for the individual only, but taking into consideration how whatever is being designed, they take consumers, the user's perspective also. But there are certain situations where you you can't avoid but design technology that meets a specific need because it's not really, you know, it's not as uh, as as available out there or mainstream technology is not meeting the needs of the individuals that need certain, um, you know, certain technology. So it, it, it varies quite a bit, you know, how, how it has advanced and how it's serving people's needs. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Uh, you know, low tech can work as well. Just have to yeah. get it to people. I notice in your bio that you uh, you help evaluate products related to web accessibility and design. What have you talked a little bit about that? That's of course we're we're all on the web, or we probably all need to be on the on the yeah, web to, sure. to keep up. So um, when I use a software, a screen reading software that called Jaws, that reads everything that's on a computer screen to me. Um, being blind, obviously, I don't use a mouse. I use keyboard to access a computer. And the software, it's a synthesized speech that reads everything that's on a computer to me. Now, in, in order for the software to interact with content on the web, it needs to have certain things put behind you know, within the code of the websites. So what web accessibility is, the, having programmers have certain criteria, to follow certain criteria so that if anyone is using any specialized technology, the, their technology is able to interact with the content without problem. So for example, when you have an image on a website, uh, say you have a picture of 
someone um, working on a computer. And if my software came across this image, it would just say graphic unless the programmer in the in in the content in the you know when they're programming they put a, a little tag saying picture of an individual working on a computer. So if they do that, when my when my screen reader comes across it, will say will read that text saying picture of an uh, individual working on a computer. Otherwise, it'll, all it will say is graphic. So, you know, it's just simple things like that that we're trying to uh, educate computer programmers to make that into practice so that it's fully inclusive. Everyone, no matter what technology they use, they can have full access to it. It's not modifying anything as far as what it looks and what it feels like. It's just adding some extra things in the background, just making best practices uh, to make it fully inclusive. So taking that example, how are programmers doing? How are we doing with that? Do they, do they generally include that or not? We, have a, we still have a long ways to go. There are laws in place that mandates certain standards to be followed for uh, government uh, websites and you know federal level websites. Uh, but when it comes to uh, you know private sector, you know obviously you can't mandate all that. So, but there are companies that are making that into a best practice certain companies are really taking that you know personally and they've you know they're implementing with making that part of their culture and part of what they do within their business practice hmm. I'm, I'm hearing about a, a program called eagle eyes are you, are you familiar with this i have heard of it i have never really used it um, but i i've heard a lot of good um, you know people talk really highly about it hmm. Um, I wonder uh, if you did tell me a little bit about your work uh, with the uh, this U.S. Access Board. Is is that mostly policy? What are you what are you trying to accomplish there? Uh, the U.S. Access Board is a federal agency that is charged with the responsibility to write standards and uh, technical criteria for various laws and legislation that has been passed by Congress. So once a uh, once a law is passed and uh, law is passed and you know signed by the president, the law does not have all the technical criteria. So we are you know we bring agencies together depending upon what agency is uh, involved within that particular piece of law, and we write technical standards. So one one of the uh, standard we are working on is refreshing the. Uh, uh, it's called the Section Five Weight. Basically, it tells federal government what is the minimum requirement they need to have when it comes to web accessibility standards, any IT procurement. Um, the other thing we are working on right now is with the Affordable Care Act, uh, we are required to do for personal care attendance, you know, what what is the standard criteria that hospital needs to have when they, uh, for patient care, you know, what, what, you know, for hospital beds and access to information for patient care, those kind of things, what's the minimum requirements they need to do to, to be fully inclusive. So so different laws have different requirements, that, uh, regulations or standards or criteria, whatever you want to call it. That's what we work on. And we bring all the different agencies together to work on these standards. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the top of the list either for for your work on this access board or your work with the system technology program? What's the what's the what's the biggest obstacle you'd like to remove? The biggest obstacle is probably still trying to raise the awareness among 
the general population when they're designing something or when they're working on uh, products to to take into consideration all the population they can impact by it, not just, uh, you know, the pop- disability population is growing drastically, and with baby boomers, there's going to be more people who are going to need a lot of these technology, you know, you know all the great technology that's coming out. So if if the people, you know, if product designers can really take into consideration of, you know, all the different variety of population that they can impact, that's probably the biggest uh, impact that they can have, you know, kind of getting rid of the, you know, the ignorance that people have about, you know, how people access information or access technology. Well, we've been talking with Sachin Pavathran. He is Program Director for the Utah Assistive Technology Program, and he's Disability Policy Analyst for Center for Persons with Disabilities at USU, and he is Chairman of the U.S. Access Board Federal uh, Program. And uh, appreciate it, uh, Sachin Pavathran. Thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, we uh, bring in next, uh, to conclude the program, talking about uh, robotics and uh, neuroscience. Of course, uh, to begin the program, we talked with Ken Valier, talking about this amazing case of uh, Eric Sordo in California, uh, who's uh, making natural movements using robotics and the power of thought. We turn to um, our next guest, uh, Jay uh, Jayaseelan, founder and CEO of Learning Through Robotics. That's a Utah company which helps kids learn STEM through robotics, and we reach him in Japan. So, J.J. Uh, Asilan, thanks for staying up late. Um, thank you for having me. Uh, you're you're at a conference, are you? Uh, what what are you doing in Japan? Yes, I'm actually attending the same conference. I'm um, actually all over the place. But oh, okay. Yes. A STEM conference. Okay. Uh, so tell me about learning through robotics. It's based in in Provo, I think. Yes, uh, Learning Through Robotics is an education company focusing on robotics and STEM and application math. Uh, we, our primary group of students come from uh, elementary and middle school, and our goal is to teach them application math and problem solving at a very young age. So our kids know how to program in fifth and sixth grade. So they learn in a fun way and to do this in after-school programs in their schools. So we are teaching in about 50 different schools in the Valley and growing, and that's our program. So they're they're programming, you said, at 5th and 6th grade? Yes. They are programming, and they build a mini robot in their classroom. Yeah, amazing, amazing. That's, uh, you know, of course... In today's world, that's a that's a very useful skill. You can you can make some good money if you get good at programming. So they're starting out uh, out young. So this I, I could see this is a very cool way uh, where kids would naturally respond and and learn about STEM if you're interacting with robots. That is correct. We teach them how to use a microcontroller using sensors and motors and. Uh, a lithium battery pack, then they have a programming language, and they actually build a mini robot. And then we give them certain tasks and try to teach them the importance of STEM education 
uh, at a very young age. So we do have uh, multiple tasks and competitions and all that to make it more fun. Hmm. What are what are the competitions? I'm I'm envisioning you know the programs on television where the robots uh, you know destroy each other. I'm guessing it's not that. Not that they have several competitions in Utah. Our task is to teach them how to get into robotics and education um, using STEM. So there are so many competitions not sponsored by us, um, but I can give you a few examples. They have a first Lego League competition. We, have introdu- we are introducing a Robo Soccer, which is going to come in the coming month. And there are so many other competitions sponsored by the universities in Utah. So if students were to participate in these, they need to understand the basics of programming and how to build a robot and how do you make sensors work. So we teach them in the after-school program. So when they go to these competitions, they know how to do that. Is is there, I'm guessing there is lasting benefit. You get a kid into this program and then perhaps they do oh, better yeah. in school? I mean, that... if you compare... Uh, Utah, or if you compare United States with uh, other technologically advanced countries, especially in Asia, right now I'm in Tokyo. What we are doing is being done in Tokyo for probably 15 years. And you can find these things in all the schools, and it's a very common thing and a common sense thing to learn technology uh, because kids at Fourth grade, fifth grade, no more technologies than teachers. Yeah, so that's... because of that, <laughs> we need to have a program to teach them. If not, five years, ten years from now, when they go to college and to the job market, the technology will be completely different, and they'll be obsolete. So our idea is to get the kids at an early age interested in these subjects, so that they will stay with it and excel. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that which which the spe- specifics of what you learn right now is going to be obsolete. But if you learn, if you learn that you're interested in this kind of thing, then that'll stay with you. Exactly. How did you? Did, do you have a background in programming? Uh, what? How did you get into this? Well, actually, it's a very interesting question. My background is financially. Uh, basically math and finance, but I have three kids that are heavily into building and programming and robotics and all that. So I was looking for, I'm originally from Singapore. So when my kids moved from Singapore to Utah, we had a very hard time finding a program that matches the level that they studied before. Because there is no application math program taught in school. They have a textbook and some exams, but not really how to put math to work or how to put science to work. So we were looking for a program in Provo, and we couldn't find one. So we just, you know, in our basement, we just started a program with some of our neighborhood kids, and it became a company eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the, uh, the company, of course, uh, is Learning Through Robotics. Utah-based company. We're talking with the founder and CEO, Jay Jayaseelan. Uh, so that you say this has been going on, uh, this type of education through robotics has been going on for 15 years in Japan. I, I assume they've had good success there with it. Oh, yes. I mean, you know a lot of things are 
you know, they manufacture a lot of these new things here and they come up with many ideas. The most important thing is the job market. Uh, if the kids were to go to a college and if they were, if we are expecting them to get a degree that will give them a job in STEM-related fields, then they need to have a good foundation in math and programming and engineering and all that. Most of our kids have a problem getting into a program like this, even though they're good at it. Because at, at an early age, they did not get into it. They try to get into it when they're in high school, and it's a little bit too late. And some try to get into it when they're in college. So this is the advantage the Asians have because they're starting very early. First graders do programming in most of the Asian countries. Hmm. That's Japan, wow. Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, Hong Kong. And our kids in Utah someday have to compete with them. Hmm. Well, we're out of time. We'll leave it there. But a very interesting program. It's, uh, it's a company called Learning Through Robotics. And their founder and CEO has been with us, Jay Seelan, who's joined us from Tokyo. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to Access Utah. Health care is often about more than just health. Our experience has been that people we're dealing with have had really rough lives, and they're not going to recover from those lives or the effects of those lives in one moment. I'm Kai Rizdal. Systemic care in the healthcare system next time on Marketplace from APM. Tuesday night at 7 here on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.